welcome to the Arna Law Podcast. In this latest installment of our Masterclass Education series, Kamala Naganand, Arna Law's managing partner, takes us through the concept of trusts. In the previous episode, we discussed wills, which is a concept familiar to most of us. This episode demystifies trusts, introducing us to the importance of trust, why one may need a trust, and everything you would need to know about setting up your own trust. Kamala includes in this podcast her deep wealth of knowledge about trusts and cites examples from her professional career, illustrating how trust can be a crucial instrument in the accumulation and transfer of wealth. Private client advisory is a large part of Kamla's practice. She has advised high net worth individuals and private individuals over the years on succession and estate planning and has worked with financial advisors and chartered accountants in setting up structures for investment and succession planning. We will split the podcast discussion in two parts. First, going over what a trust is, the different types of trust and how to create a trust. The second part covers nuanced details of the functioning of a trust and how to dissolve a trust. Thank you for joining us for the second session that we planned today on trusts. The idea is for us to educate ourselves a little bit more on the concepts of wills and trusts to make more informed decisions, right? I think today in this age of technology, not knowing is not an answer, right? And uh, very often people say, listen, I don't get into what I don't know. And that's where we as specialists come in to guide you and uh, tell you what the pros and cons are, right? What your options are in each specific condition. So the session today is on trusts and specifically the legislation on, on trusts in India, right? We will be covering a small part on trusts uh, that can be created overseas, but we'll think of getting more into details of that in the next session. So uh, what is a trust, right? So a trust is an obligation to the ownership of property arising out of a confidence that is reposed in and accepted by the owner, right? So when an individual says, I want to create an entity, and so a trust is a separate legal entity that is created. It is, it usually comprises of movable and immovable property. And there is a settler who is the person who decides to create the trust with very, very clear intentions, right? And so the idea is for a relationship to be created, right? It's a fiduciary relationship with one party who is creating the trust, okay? The second party who is managing the trust and the third party who is the beneficiary who is going to benefit from the trust. So there are three very important relationships in this process. So the Three important relationships are, one is the author of the trust, right? So an author of the trust is the person who says, I would like to create a trust. So there is an intention, followed by, I would like to use X amount of funds that I have into the trust. The third is the trust, uh, the second is the trustee, right? The trustee says, I accept taking responsibility for the management of the money or assets put into the trust. So that is the role of a trustee, right? To look after the interests of the trust, to look after the 
assets of the trust. And then the third component to this is the beneficiary. And the beneficiary is the person for whose benefit the trust is created. Now, this benefit can be of a personal nature for, say, a minor who cannot hold property in their own name. It can also be for a god. So, in India, we have temple trusts where the beneficiary and the owner is the ideal itself. And so, the Mula Devata is the beneficiary of the temple trust. Right? And the trustees act on behalf of the temple trust but with the best intentions of the temple in mind. Right? Now, the fourth component to this is, of course, the property. Now, a trust will need some money, will need some assets. Right? And the idea is usually when a trust is created to safeguard or ring fence assets. Right? So, lately we have been seeing that most businesses today have to give personal bank guarantees or personal guarantees. Right? And these guarantees are usually perpetual. Now, how does one ring fence one's property? How does one, one ring fence one's assets in such a situation? And this is where a trust comes into form or there are other structures that can also be created where you put aside your monies and ensure that no way can this property or money be attached in case of you giving a personal guarantee. And the reason I say that is because a trust is a separate legal entity from you. You might have been the settler of the trust to put the money in, but no way can the law come and say, this property belonged to X and therefore now I can go into that and pull it out. Right? So it's a way of ring fencing your assets to make sure that you protect it and you provide for your next generation in case there is an issue. Now, I'm not saying that this is an absolute and only way of doing it. A way very often suffices. It depends on the nature of the business that you are in and the requirements of each family. And based on that, the call should be taken. Because after all, when you look at a trust, it is a separate legal entity. There will be compliances that you will have to do for it. Things like the tax returns will have to be filed, right? Any investments, there will be long-term, short-term capital gains on the trust. So all this needs to be kept in mind and your investment advisors will be able to advise you whether it's a good opportunity or not. But if you are looking at it, I'd like to take you through some of the main principles and and issues, right? And share with you stories of families who we have advised and what they have faced and some of the reasoning behind doing things they did. So we would now look at the parties involved in a trust, right? So when you look at a settler, a settler is a person who creates the trust, like I mentioned. Any person who is competent to contract, which means he is major, he is of sound mind and he is not disqualified to contract, right, can set up a trust. Sometimes we have seen that the principal civil judge, right, of the of, in the original jurisdiction side may also set up a trust on behalf of a minor. Now, an example of this can be uh, in the case of a natural disaster or a plane crash, if there are children who are minors, they obviously cannot hold property, they cannot contract, and therefore, we have seen the judge steps in and says, please let a trust be created. All the interests of the parent's property be put into the trust. And the idea is for the trust money to be managed by a set of trustees. The court will then identify trustees who will be able to do this. Usually it is family members who will also act as guardians towards the children. And finally, the money 
to be used will be for the best interests of the minor till the minor becomes a major and is able to own the property. Right? So this is an extraordinary situation where the judge steps in. Right? But if we were to put it in our wills, we are regularly seeing this pattern where families come to us and say we want to create our wills. So then we draft the will and say, listen, what happens to a minor? Right? Because it's your responsibility to ensure that the interests of the minor are look, looked after if there were some untoward situations to happen. And that's where regularly parents are now coming to us to say, fine, let us set up a will. In the will, we will draft a trust. Right? The trust will kick in only if something were to happen to me or me and my wife. Right? Till then, trust deed or, or the, the trust document will remain a part of the will. Now, if something were to happen to both the families, the families, the, the remainder of the family who is then able to guide the children and the investment advisor is very, very clear that these were the intentions of the parents. Please set up the trust. And so automatically then the investment advisor and the lawyers can work towards moving the properties which are in the name of the parents into a trust to be looked after in the best interests of the children, right? But again, this is something that is, you know, long-term visioning. A lot of parents choose not to do this, where they say, no, we don't want to do this. We want to give it to, we want to set our intentions very clearly to X and Y. Usually it is one member of uh, the parent's side. So one mother, from the mother's side, one person, and from the father's side, one person. They know our intention. And if something were to happen to me, they will take it. So very often we have also seen that we identify two people who will be the guardians in case there were to be an untoward situation. And the parents then inform these two, take their consent and say, if something were to happen to me, will you please ensure the best interests of the child? And this is what we want to be done. So that is also another way of doing it. The next uh, party to this transaction will be the trustee, right? So a trustee is appointed by the settler or by a court in the earlier example that I gave you so that the they act as the administrators of the trust property and manage the day-to-day -day affairs of the trust. Now such a person who is a trustee must again be capable of holding property. He must be of sound mind. He must very clearly accept trusteeship. So please beware that if you are to create a trust and if you are to have people on board as trustees, there should be explicit consent, right, by them. So you need to please speak to them and make sure that you have got their consent, that they agree to be trustees. Now, if the trust is of a discretionary nature, which is a trust for a wide variety of purposes, the trustees may be the person, uh, has to be a person, who is again competent to contract and he can also identify when the reason for the trust is completed and close the trust. So I will take you through further the different types of trust. But what you should remember is that a trustee is a very powerful person and he has a wide range of powers. Therefore, it must be somebody who you should have faith in, who you should explain to the purposes for which the trust is being created. And at the same time, make sure that he has the ability to take on the responsibility. Another important aspect is that if it is an Indian trust, at least one trustee must be Indian. 
So therefore, you must make sure that when you are appointing a trustee, that person is up in um, he is domiciled in India to take care of the day-to-day -day functions of the trust. Now, the third aspect is the beneficiary. So a beneficiary is the person who is going to enjoy the benefits of the property that is kept in the charge of the trustee, right? Any beneficiary can request for certain exceptional cases, request the trust to provide for certain exceptional cases. But in most instances, the beneficiary is usually capable of holding property and also of sound mind. Now, there are instances where we saw a family that was um, based in India, but they had one child who was mentally disabled, right? So in such a situation, the child who was out of India said, listen, you need to take care of her because I can't keep coming up and down. So therefore, what they did is they identified a nephew who was based in Bangalore and they set up a trust. And that trust then looked after the benefits of the child. First, the mother passed away, then the father passed away. And this nephew was the one who took care of all the trust property. Of course, the brother was always there. But in case of an emergency, the nephew was able to disperse the funds, was able to do what the intention or was, which is looking after the child who was disabled. So what you need to do is make sure that there are clear reasons for setting up a trust. Also, create that boundary, right, where you identify what can be done and cannot be done. Now, there are two types of trust, right? The first is a public charitable trust. Now, a public charitable trust is usually created for as a non-profit, right? It's usually for charitable purposes, sometimes for temples, uh, sometimes for religious purposes, sometimes uh, with a vast agenda to look after the best interests of the community. This kind of a trust is very popular in India and a large number of organizations run as public charitable trusts. When you in, uh, donate to a public charitable trust, you very often get ATG exemption, right? Which is, it gets set off against your tax. And so public charitable trusts come with a vast array of options available and vast array of compliances also required to ensure that they run efficiently and for the purposes that they were set up for. Private trusts, on the other hand, are trusts that are created specifically for a purpose in mind, for a private purpose in mind, right? So uh, a simple example is the example that I just now gave you for the child, right? For the disabled child, that was a private trust. Whereas if it is a trust that is of a temple or of a charitable institution, the ultimate beneficiary is the public at large. And therefore, that is the distinction that you can understand, right? So for public purposes, it's a public trust. If it is for a private purpose, it is a private trust. Now, the Indian Charitable Trusts Act 1882 is a primary statute that recognizes the concept of the trusts and most private trusts are created under this act. Now, the next part I'd like to take you through is to understand the various types of trust structures, right? And the nature of the trusts. Now, a revocable trust. Now, in the private instance, a revocable trust would be one where it is for a specific duration 
and post that it can be terminated right so it can be suppose you want to set up a trust for your child till the child turns say 30 right and the intention of this setting up this trust is to ensure that the child's education the child's health care marriage all the expenses to do with that are taken care of now this will be for a specific period of time post which in most instances what we do we suggest that the assets be dissolved and the money goes directly into the bank account of the beneficiary. A revocable trust. A irrevocable trust. Now, an irrevocable trust is one where it is in perpetuity, which means it is for an indefinite period of time. Now, public charitable causes are very often put under where you want to make sure that you don't keep having uh, you know, people come and say, shut down the trust, shut down the trust, right? So whenever there are specific purposes for which trust is created in the best interests of the public and you want the project to go on for a long time, say, suppose you want to start a school, right? Now you would like to set up a trust and uh, you put up the corpus money in, into it and you start the school. Now the school can't close after 25 years, right? That's when the school will really, really be taking off. Therefore, this would be an irrevocable trust where nobody can come and close it down and it will be in perpetuity. Now, specific or determinate trusts are another category, right? Where if there is a specific cause, now uh, when there was uh, in the 1980s and 90s, AIDS was a big issue. And so there were a lot of trusts that were set up in India to look at AIDS and AIDS research and also access to medicine. So that's when for a determinate purpose, right? To look at AIDS and AIDS research to see what one can do to ensure that you can limit the spread of the disease. And all the monies that came into that were used for specific purposes to do research on this, to help on identifying uh, and doing surveys to see who were the ones who were getting affected. And then finally, how can we provide access to medicine? Because most of the research was done abroad especially in the US and the access to medicine was very bad. So how was it that you could work with generic companies, create generic drugs and move it here? So this was for a specific purpose and therefore a lot of organizations created the specific charter for this. Like this, even till today, uh, there are organizations that are being created for specific reasons, right? And people are ensuring that they donate to that cause. The other kind of trust that I was talking about was a discretionary trust, right? So this kind of trust has the discretion to determine from time to time, right, the intent and the extent of the ben financial uh, of financial benefit that the trust intends to disperse. Now uh, we have seen families which have, uh, see the Tata trusts, for instance. So they have a very very large charter, and they have various instances of education, Medicare, right, insurance, housing, rural development. They look at a vast array of causes. So therefore, this is a discretionary trust where they have the choice of choosing how much money goes into which cause. There might be some years in which they might want to give more to medical aid, right? In the last three, four years, medical aid has been a big issue. So there, they look at the needs of society and provide for it adequately. So the Tata trusts are an example of discretionary trust. Of course, you have the choice of working out various hybrid permutations and combinations between these types, 
This is just a very large framework for you to understand the concept of trusts. I think Srikant has a question. So in the case of a revo revocable trust being revoked, I thought the proceeds would be counted as income and taxed. So again, it depends on what was the intention of the trust deed. So in the case of a revocable trust, if it was a benefit of one individual, then yes, you are right. When the trust dissolves, the monies would be uh, withdrawn from all the investments and that would be handed over to the beneficiary. Now, it depends on how you structure the, ta the, the trust deed to figure out whether it is looked at as income, whether it is looked at as an inheritance or whether it is looked at as a gift. It really depends on how the trust deed is structured. So we will now spend some time on going through what a private trust is and to understand the concept of a private trust, right? So we've all heard of trust funds and trust fund babies. It's very, very common in the US. And uh, in India, to put you, you know, to put some context to it, I would say Vijay Malia is one of, you know, the first trust fund babies that ever came out of India. Right, his father had the foresight to create a trust for him, and a lot of the investments and benefits were put into that trust. And the trust, of course, was out of India; it was offshore, it was anonymous. And the way people usually do it is that they create a web of structures. So it's not very clear. It's a it's an opaque structure where there will be one company, then there will be one company in another jurisdiction. Then you create a trust. You don't identify who the beneficiary is, so that you can then pass it on to another trust being a beneficiary and ultimately the beneficiary will get it. So the idea of creating these opaque structures, especially by these large family businesses and HNIs is to ensure that firstly, there is anonymity. Two, they want to make sure that whatever is put into the trust does not become public knowledge. And three, it is a mechanism where over a period of time, they move money out of the country which can then be used strategically for their business purposes and also for the education and support of their family. So what usually happens is that a lot of jurisdictions make sure that they have clauses to hide who the beneficiaries are to ensure that you are not able to identify who is the beneficiary of that trust. So a private trust can be created for bequeathing the benefits to a specific individual, to a certain group of people, to a family. It can be for a limited period of time, say for specific purposes and post the people turning a certain age, it can be dissolved and it can also be created as part of a will. So when a will is drafted, you include in it a trust so that if something were to happen, you could create a separate entity. Now, what are the essentials of a valid trust? So a trust must be created first and foremost for a lawful purpose. You cannot create a trust for an unlawful purpose. The minute you create a trust for an unlawful purpose, it becomes defunct. It should not be against morality and against public policy. It cannot be for defrauding or illegal purposes, but it should be created in law. It should be registered. There should be a clear reason for which it is created. The author must be competent to contract, that is, he must be of majority, he must be of sound mind, and he must have the ability to hold uh, property and contract. So, in this case, right, it's interesting to note that if a person has been declared bankrupt, he cannot create a trust. So, there was an example recently where uh, we created a trust for a family 
so there was a family office and there was trust. There were two things that we created. This gentleman decided that he wanted the trust to be created. Uh, he created two trusts, right? So one for his uh, for his two children. And what he made clear was that the interests of the trust would only be for the children, that is his children and his grandchildren. And he made it very, very clear that it was only blood relatives and therefore the spouses of the children could in no way interfere in the running of the trust and were not made beneficiaries of the trust. So therefore, he wanted to clearly demarcate that the trust and its property was only used for his children and for his grandchildren. The author of the trust must also indicate with certainty, firstly, his intention to create a trust. He would have clear intention to say, this is what I want to do. I want to create a trust. Second, he should set out the purposes for the trust to work under. Now, when the trust is created, the trustees will only act when they are clear as to what the purpose of the trust is. So you can say it is for investments. Then you can say in, in certain families, they will say they want to do only specific investments. On the other hand, there are certain families will say, I don't want to do any investments in certain sectors. Right. So recently we worked with a family who uh, is a very devout Hindu family. And they said, listen, we don't want to uh, invest in any in any instruments which would in any way deal with tobacco and the tobacco industry and specifically in meat and meat packing industry and alcohol and alcohol based industries. So this was something that they insisted that we put in the trust deed because they said, listen, this is the guiding purpose of the trust and therefore we should be clear that we don't want to invest in these purposes. We are, we are happy to invest in other purposes, but this for us is a no. So like this, there are details that families would like to put into their trust structures to be clear as to what the trustee can do and cannot do. The beneficiaries also, right? Like we just saw in the example I shared, it was very clear that it was only blood relatives and so the spouses could not benefit from it. The third is that the trust property, again, clearly demarcate which of the properties that you own will go into a trust. Now, in most cases, when you move property, you will have to pay stamp duty and have to move it into the trust. Financial instruments, of course, is much easier because you move the money and then your financial advisor will start investing through the trust in the name of the trust. Finally, the transfer of trust property by the author should be without uncertainty, right? So there should be clear demarcation and there should not be any confusion. Now, can a foreign contribution be made to a private Indian trust? So in the case of both public and private, if you are FCRA compliant and registered, you will have to open a bank account in State Bank of India, Barakambaru in Delhi, and monies can come into your account from abroad. There are certain requirements though in the case of foreign money coming in where you will have to, under the FEMA Act you will have to make sure that the person is resident in India and that the uh, money that is coming in uh, foreign currency or the foreign uh, or the property that you are going to be bringing into the trust clearly has an India component to it. Now the second question is can property in a foreign jurisdiction be held by an Indian trustee or an Indian trust? 
there again if you acquire a property suppose you are working abroad right and you bought a property there if you want to sell it and move that money into the trust you can do it second if you have inherited a property that property can also be put into an indian trust but in most cases what people do is when there are assets out of india they create a separate trust and they move the money into that trust or they move that property into the trust or they buy property using money that they have already moved out through the lrs scheme so under the lrs scheme you are allowed to take out of the country a certain amount per individual in the family therefore yeah what they usually do is move money slowly out as investments and once they have a sizable amount they go ahead and buy it. now if they don't want to buy it in their personal name they will create a trust and through that trust the this lrs money will be moved into the trust and then the trust will go ahead and buy the property what we have also seen is that immovable property property right you cannot by word of mouth say i am moving this money into the trust there has to be a clear deal that is made and this property has to be assigned into the trust and you will have to explore that the trust has money to buy it if if not you will have to gift it to the trust right as a gift deed and that will then be trust property going forward movable property as well if it were available say a financial instrument again you can either gift it to the trust or what you could do is move the money into the trust and the trust would then go ahead and buy property now we have an example here where uh, an hi hni set up a family office uh, to move money slowly out of the country uh, country legally and build the corpus right so what he ended up doing was he first moved money over a period of time into an individual private account once he did that he had a sizable amount in his name he then set up a investment trust in a low tax jurisdiction that money was then used to make investments and so the money that he collected through lrs in his account was moved into the trust and the trust then started making investments in various financial entities overseas direct investment into a trust is not allowed in india so you cannot set up a trust and then use odi to directly invest into a trust now registration of a trust now a trust needs to be registered when you register the trust it gets that individual entity usually you go to the sub registrar's office and you pay a certain amount and once you've paid that amount you put you start with a small corpus within the trust now since registering the trust would make it a public document it's highly recommended to ensure that there is privacy for the family you start a very small amount in the trust to begin with post the registration you can then build up your corpus this is again so that there is clarity there is privacy and it is clear uh, and and it is a little bit opaque because if you were to put a large amount into the trust then you would regular you would have to register the trust after that and so while registering it it would uh, when you once you register a trust it becomes a public document therefore what we usually recommend is that you start trust with a small amount get the trust registered and then move money into it slowly stamp duty also is payable where a trust has been created through a non testamentary instru- instrument 
So again, the total value of the assets moved into the trust when starting should be small so that post-registration, the property moved can devolve into the trust and there is a little bit more discretion. So recently we did this where there was a trust that was created. Uh, actually, this is very interesting because uh, there was a family uh, of four. The daughter was in the UK, the son is here and the husband and wife. Now, for whatever reason, they wound up all their businesses, they sold all their properties and land and they wanted to just live a happy, retired life. So they, they came up with setting up their family trust. So what they did is they set up the trust with 10,000 rupees in it. And post that, they moved all their financial assets into the trust. And then they had their investment advisors who advised them on how to manage the trust property or uh, trust money. And uh, the beneficiaries of that trust were the parents. And so the parents said, listen, we don't want to get into the running of all this. We will take care of the day-to-day -day investments and things. And we will live out after the prop uh, live from the proceeds of that. And post our demise, the all the properties, right? So the house that they were living in, and then they bought another house to deal with capital gains. Both of them, along with the all the monies in the trust, are to be divided equally amongst our two children. So this was done so that they lived a retired life without having to worry about any asset and without having to, you know, take care of a, a large corpus the trust was the one who was going to do all of it and the trustees were the two children right so they said that they want a say in how the funds of the trust were to be invested and the children said absolutely you know we're happy to do it now in this case what is also interesting to note is that this gentleman had a lot of cases that he was dealing with on winding up his companies and his businesses and therefore he had ring fenced his he these assets by ensuring that nothing was in, in his name and everything was in the name of his wife uh, to ensure that the wife and children are taken care of and he was dealing with you know his businesses and winding them down. Thank you for listening to the first part of our Masterclass podcast on trust. In the next episode, Arna Law Managing Partner Kamala Naganand will go over the essential elements of a trust, the duties of a trustee, the rights of a beneficiary, NRIN trusts, and dissolving a trust. You can find the second episode of this masterclass series along with our podcast on various other subjects on www.arnalaw.com.